You're listening to Radio Diaries. This is Joe. And I'm excited to tell you about the newest show in the Radiotopia family. It's called The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. I'm sure a lot of you listen to podcasts while cooking. Well, The Recipe is the podcast that will teach you how to be a better cook with tips from two seasoned pros, pun intended. Hosted by Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Walk and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen, The Recipe not only lets you learn new recipes, but also teaches you techniques and secret ingredients that will up your cooking from just okay to restaurant quality. So welcome them to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Radio Diaries is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Radiotopia. From PRX. From PRX's Radiotopia, this is Radio Diaries. I'm Joe Richman. If you're a longtime listener to this show, you may remember a few of these voices. See, when you dial the operator, that's what you get. You get someone like me. Oh, I love it. There's never a day long enough. It was boring, monotonous work. I am in a profession in which I cannot age. I mean, you got a wife. Nothing wrong with it. People have been doing it for years. There was the telephone switchboard operator, the private eye the auto factory worker, and the hotel piano player. I am the last live entertainment of the Sherman Hotel. Today, we're bringing you all these stories in a special hour-long episode from our series, The Working Tapes of Studs Terkel. The nature of the work you do. Well, this is a book about work, jobs yeah. people do. How would you describe your work? Uh, let's see, how would I describe my wife? Uh, In 1974, Studs Terkel published a book with an unwieldy title, Working, People Talk About What They Do All Day and How They Feel About What They Do. It was a collective portrait of America and was based on more than 100 interviews Studs did around the country. And after Working came out, something surprising happened. It became a bestseller. It even inspired a Broadway musical. Something about ordinary people talking about their daily lives in their own words struck a chord. It certainly did that for me. This is the sound of my copy of Working from high school. But it's one thing to read the interviews in the book, and it's another thing to hear them. And very few people have. Studs recorded all the interviews on his portable reel-to-reel tape recorder. But after the book was released in 1974, he packed those raw interview tapes into boxes and stored them away. And there they stayed, untouched, until he died. We at Radio Diaries and our friend Jane Sachs of Project Anne were offered the chance to make a radio series out of these recordings. For me, as a proud archival tape geek, this was like uncovering the Dead Sea Scrolls. This hour, we bring you our series, The Working Tapes of Studs Terkel. And as you'll hear, we track down some of the people Studs interviewed in those tapes more than 40 years ago. In some ways, listening to The Working Tapes is like opening up a time capsule. Some of the jobs Studs profiled no longer exist. In our first story, Studs interviews a telephone switchboard operator in Waukegan, Illinois. I'm talking to uh, Sharon Griggins. You're about uh, 17 going 18. Mm -hmm. 
And you work for Illinois Bell. Oh, yes. Ma Bell. See, when you dial the operator, that's what you get. You get someone like me. When you dial O. Oh, when they dial O, mm -hmm. we get you. That's it. Because this is the only telephone office in Waukegan. Could you describe it? So, um, it's a big, long room, about half the size of a gymnasium, I would say, and it's down both sides, there's a whole row of switchboards. How close is the girl sitting next to you? Oh, very close. I would say she'd be sitting not even five or six inches away from me. Is that cramped? Yeah, yeah we're cramped. Yeah. So now describe it step by step, as okay. though you were telling a little child what it is. Okay, now first of all, in front of you, you've got um, about seven pairs of cords and all these lights that tell you where the calls are coming from. When a light goes on, that means there's someone waiting there, and you plug in, and you ask them what they want. <laughs> Do your arms get tired? No. Your mouth gets tired. It's the strangest. You get tired of talking. You've you been talking for so long, because you talk constantly for six hours, and it's hard. Keep you know? going on this point. Well, you get to feel just like a machine, because essentially you're on this level of about seven or eight phrases that you use, and like what? You, you say, um, good morning, may I help you? Operator, may I help you? Oh, then it's, um, what number did you want? Or I have a collect call for you from so-and-so. Will you accept the charge? Something like that. You said it's pretty hard. It is because what you're doing is like monotonous work. But for me, it's a great temptation to talk. Like when I'm bored, I make some little comments or something, or I talk with a southern accent or Puerto Rican accent. You try and make your voice really sexy and just see what kind of reaction. And you horse around. Yeah. yeah, I do. But if you get caught talking with the customer, that's one mark against you. Well, because the company says you can't get too personal. Yeah, yeah. you can't. You know, some people, they'll say, operator, I'm lonesome. Will you talk to me? People do say that? Really? They say, I'm lonesome. Will you talk to me? What and you couldn't. I says, gee, I'm sorry. I really can't. But you can't. <laughs> You're doing a great deal of talking, but the talk has nothing to do with actual human communication. Right. That's very true. It's, it's not really a lonely profession or anything, but it's one where you not a whole lot of communication, even though that is your job. Sharon, you're quite marvelous. Really. <laughs> do you see yourself as a telephone operator for the rest of your life? No. 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 Never. Never. <laughs> I did not become a career telephone operator. My name is Sharon Griggins. Back in 1972, I was a telephone operator in Studs Terkel's working. You know, I really remember working there very vividly. And I don't know, maybe that job helped me develop a keener ear for um, what people need and what people want. I think I became a really good listener. But... Let's get real. I don't think there's much romance in the uh, work of a telephone operator. I think about some poor person at the end of that line who's sitting in a cubicle somewhere saying the same things, taking down the same numbers for eight hours a day. You know, automation is great in today's world, but it's hard to automate everybody's wishes and wants. I mean, we've all had those situations where all you want to do is talk to somebody and all you have is a list of menu options. You know, I still tell my kids, 
just always pick zero. You feel a machine could replace you one day soon? Oh, sure. Hmm? Sure. It'd have to be some machine, though, because if people knew how funnily they talked, how, how badly they pronunciate, how hard it is to understand some people, a machine would have a hard time. <laughs> Telephone switchboard operator Sharon Griggins, interviewed by Studs Terkel. If you pick up a copy of the book, Sharon appears under the pseudonym Heather Lamb. She's now the director of communications at the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Studs didn't just ask people to describe what they did for a living. He asked them how they felt about it. It was boring, monotonous work. I don't give a shit what anybody says. It was boring and monotonous to work on an assembly line. That's Gary Briner. He was 29 when Studs interviewed him at an auto factory in Ohio. I'm somewhere between Youngstown and Warren, Ohio. It's an industrial area, steel, automobiles. Talking to Gary Briner. Gary Briner is the president of local 1114 United Auto Workers. No, 1124. 1112. 1112. What what sort of plant is this? It's the General Motors Vega plant in Lordstown. The most automated plant in the world, isn't it? Right. It's the fastest line speed in the world, and they've got the most modern equipment, the Unimates. They got 22 in a row, 11 on each side of the line. Can you describe a unimate? Well, it looks like a robot, you know, and it, it reminds me of a praying mantis. When they took the unimates on, we were building 60 an hour prior to the unimates. And when we came back to work with the unimates, we were building 101 cars per hour. See, they never tire, they never sweat, they never complain, they never miss work. They're always there. Yeah. So what happened to the guys in the plant that are working there now? It's a funny thing, you know, when they revamped the plant, they tried to take every movement out of the guy's day so that he could conserve seconds and time so that they could make him more efficient, more productive. Is the assembly line approach dependent upon the fact that each guy is exactly like the other guy? Right. GM's reason for trying to be more efficient is that if they could take one second and save a second on each guy's effort, they would, over a year, make a million dollars. One second. That's right. You know, they use the stopwatches. And they say, look, we know from experience that it takes so many seconds to walk from here to there. We know that it takes so many seconds to shoot that screw. We know the gun turns so fast and the screw so long and the hole so deep. We know how long it takes. And that's what that guy's going to do. And our argument has always been, you know, that's mechanical. Mm -hmm. That's not human. Look, we tire, we sweat, we have hangovers, we have upset stomachs, we have feelings, emotions, and we're not about to be placed in a category of a machine. This is something new, isn't it? The workers in the plant, uh, they feel that they have a right in determining the nature of their work, too, the working men? We do now. Uh, we have some kind of pride being able to stand up to the giant General Motors Corporation and say, look, this is what I think is fair, and I'm willing to fight to show you that it's fair. I just think they want to be able to be treated with dignity and some respect. And, uh, and I, you know, that's not asking a hell of a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, it takes me back. <laughs> I'm Gary Briner, retired, have been for 11 years. I didn't plan to be a union guy. I just wandered into it. 
1966 through 75, maybe later, the company and the union were bitter enemies. Every gain we made usually came out of a strike, and that's just the way it was. But the the job of the union today is much tougher than it was for me in 1970 because the strength of the union has been so weakened. And look, the union's not perfect. I'd be the first to say it. But, you know, what we did in the union is to create this middle class that were able to do things, enjoy their life outside of work. And I worry about these things that we're losing. But listen, you got to have a job. No matter what it is, you got to have a job. It's one of those things that must be. Picking it up with uh, Gary, you feel this is shape of things to come? I hope that it is, because I think what we're doing is right. You know, we're, we're putting humans before profits, and I think that's necessary. I think if it isn't that way in other places, it should be. Gary Briner, interviewed by Studs Terkel in the early 1970s. Sometimes Studs interviewed people at the end of their careers, looking back on their lives, trying to make sense of what they had accomplished. Eddie Jaffe was a New York press agent, legendary for pulling quirky publicity stunts on behalf of his clients. He was a small, wiry man who loved to tell stories. As you listen to Studs' interview with Jaffe, you'll notice Studs barely gets a word in. So how many years have you been a press agent, roughly? Well, you know... I started 32 years ago, and in the course of the years, I did everything, from strippers to a thing called roller derby, hell on wheels, from gangsters to Billy Graham. Really? Gangsters to Billy Graham? Yeah. You handled both? Yeah. But don't forget, Studs, that I spent most of my life learning techniques that are of no value anymore. What does that mean? A client would come to me and say, I want to be a star, get me attention, and I maybe I'd get her in Life magazine. Today, she can go on the Carson show, mm-hmm. if she can get on there, and get more attention than I could have gotten in a year. And this has helped destroy press agentry as we knew it. Well, in these 30 years of being quite an imaginative press agent, you feel you've done meaningful work? Well, uh, there was a physical kick out of seeing things you're responsible for in the papers. But being a publicity man, is a confession of weakness in a way. In other words, it's for people who don't have the guts to try to get attention for themselves. You spend your whole life telling the world how great somebody else is. And this is a frustrating thing. Your, your imagination, you know, the ideas you had, do you feel it could have been used some other way? Oh, sure. I mean, almost everybody, I think, looks back on their life and says, I wasted it. And being a press agent gives you a far greater opportunity to do this than almost any other occupation. You know, I'll tell them five. I'll be out five. Eddie, it's okay. Eddie Jaffe, interviewed by Studs Terkel in the early 1970s. Jaffe died in 2003 at the age of 89, and his obit in the New York Times referred to him as the last of a breed, the do-anything, buccaneering press agent. One interesting thing about these working tapes is that Studs never intended them to be broadcast. In the book, Studs mostly edited himself out. 
But when you listen to the raw interviews, you get a sense of the man behind the microphone. You can also hear how Studs was a bit of a technical klutz. There's feedback, bad microphone placement. Sometimes the mic bumps up against things. There are even a few times when Studs asks the person he's interviewing for help figuring out a problem with the tape recorder. Let me just see. I want to test this. It's very strong. I wonder why it's so strong. But here's the thing. Studs used all of this to his advantage. He would sometimes ham it up or even fake a problem with his recorder. He said it was an equalizer. If the person he was interviewing helped him with the equipment, it was like they were in it together. Studs said it made that person feel needed. Uh, This is way loud, isn't it? Yeah, I've got it now. You, you were saying? Most of Studs' interviews were planned well in advance. But one morning, he was in a taxi on the way to the airport in Youngstown, Ohio. The driver was a woman named Helen Mogg, grandmother of five. They began talking, and Studs quickly pulled out his tape recorder and microphone and began recording. It's not a wave, Oh, this thing is way... Oh, I see. I'm in the car. That's why. Uh, it's okay. It's about 6 o'clock early morning. And I'm riding with Mrs. Mogg, Miss Helen Mogg, who's a limo driver. Uh, one I, of several drivers for, yes, the, for this company. Yes, I am. Yeah, I was thinking as, a, as we're heading now toward the airport at Youngstown, that sun is fantastic. We see part of the red, don't we? Yes, it is. That's something that an artist can't catch. How long have you been doing this work? Well, I've been doing it for a couple of years. Now we're coming to the key. This is what my book is about, about you and what you're doing now as a limousine driver. Before your work, most of your life was what? Well, I did secretarial work, and when I was much younger, I did waitress work. Does the work day seem long? Uh, surprisingly, not as long as you would think. First of all, I love to drive. And secondly, you meet people from all walks of life. And many people have problems, but oftentimes it's good to know they can talk to someone who's a total stranger to them. They have a habit of confiding in that person because they feel that they'll never see the person again. So a lot of your passengers uh, tell you things. Oh, yes. Liking people, I think that's what makes it really. Yeah. Before I uh, pay you for the cab, could you do this... Describe a day, from the moment you get up in the morning, could you do that, you know? At what time would you say get up in the morning, usually? Well, like this morning I was up at 5, because I had an early morning pickup at 6. So I came out, I see a beautiful sky and a beautiful sun. So I know I have a good day ahead of me. And you work from about 5 till when? When would you get home? Well, if I'm lucky, I'll be home by 12.30. At night? Mm-hmm. So there's a good, uh, that's about 19 hours right there, isn't it? Something like that today. When I don't have an early morning pickup, I can average out around 12 hours. Do you look forward to retirement? Uh, no, I'm scared of it. I don't feel retirement is exactly the best of things for people. They, when you retire, you start to go into a shell, and you're like the forgotten person. You get bogged down in nothing, and you do nothing, and you wind up nothing. Yeah, that's interesting. So here you put in a minimum of 12 hours a day. Right. Seven days a week. So. Right. Oh, yeah. But you feel more tired 
if I didn't. If, yeah. This is true. Because when I'm not busy, I get very weary. So if I was to retire with nothing to do, I don't think I could stand it. It's work, though, that you see. Work is the prime part of your life. Work. Yes, very much so. I think everything hinges on it and doing a good job on it. Yeah. Because I'm a firm believer if you're going to do something, do it to the best yeah. of your ability or don't do it at all. Now, do you think a time will come, though, with automation, more and more machines, uh, that the hours will be shorter and shorter, people will have tremendous leisure time? I'm afraid they will, and I'm afraid that it's not the, for the best interest. Idle hands make an idle mind. And I'm not in favor of the short hours. I think eight hours, fine. But like you say, automation will cut work down. It'll also cut a lot of jobs down. And I read an article here not too long ago regarding this future. And I think it'll also increase unemployment. Unless they can come up with something else that would uh, make for more employment, but which who knows what could be. We're coming back to the question of work itself, work and life. You see the two connected, don't you? Very much so. Work and life. They work hand in hand. That's why the hours then go fast for you. I would say yes. And people are interesting, no question. And when people say thank you for helping them, and you don't even know how you have helped them, it really makes you feel nice inside. And I don't think there's anything that can take its place. You look forward to each day? I do. I do because I never know what's going to happen the next day. And it's always interesting to find out. If you don't go out there, you're not going to find out by sitting home. Yeah. Studs Turkle with taxi driver Helen Mogg. Studs had a thing for interviewing people in cars. Lovinow Pommier was a car hiker, which is like a cooler way of saying parking lot attendant. And if you listen closely, you can hear the sound of two guys in a car smoking cigars. I'm sitting in a car with a car hiker, loving out Pommy. He's been hiking cars for 25, 30 years. It's on Wabash and Van Buren's called a flat lot. And we're sitting in the car puffing some 15 cent cigars, and he's talking. I had a customer come in here last week. He must have been a good seven feet or six something, and I'm only five feet three. And the guy asked me, he said, uh, he said, you're too short to reach the gas pedal. You better pull the seat up. And it looked like I was sitting in the back seat, and I was barely touching the brakes. I said, no, I said, I don't have to push the seat back. This is the way the man leaves the seat. I never push a seat back in no customer car. Now, I may pull myself up and brace from the wheel, mm-hmm. but I never miss that hole. What do you mean by the hole? I mean, I'm backing in the stall like in this. In the stall. In the stall. One swing air, they used to call it. <laughs> one swing loving air, because I got the car judge a certain distance to make that one swing. When you can do just right in the head just without Just one hand, no to. two hands. I always have my head inside the car looking from the back view mirror. Look backwards. Look backwards. I never put my head this way. That's right. When you're in reverse. When I'm reversed. So you would do that with one swing? One swing. And that was kind of an art. Never miss. One swing, love and air from 401 South Wabash. I'm known from the Peking to the Hong Kong to the West Coast to the Paco. <laughs> love and Al Pommier. One Swing, Love and Al. Studs recorded more than 130 interviews for his book, Working. 
Some, honestly, are duds. And some almost feel like accidental works of art. Here at Radio Diaries, one of our favorites is this interview with a private eye in Brooklyn. I'm seated somewhere in Brooklyn, home of uh, Anthony Ruggiero and his wife, a very delightful boy. So this is a book about work, jobs yeah. people do. How would you describe your work? Uh, let's see, how would I describe my work? 90% of the job is the ability to move around to different places without causing any suspicion. And, uh, oh, sure. No, I'm just thinking, like, they usually put him in a job where he has the most mobility. Right, yeah. And you got to be a quick talker. Any private investigator, any private detective, he has one thing and one thing only, and that is his wits. He can't pull a badge out in a bind and say, hey, police department. No, he can't use a gun. You no. Gotta, no. No, you never, you never carry a gun. I'd like to. A lot of times I you would wish I had a gun. Really? Yeah. Really? But, you know, you ain't got a gun, you ain't got a badge. You got to be slick. You got to... Excuse me, you got to be a bullshit. Mm-hmm. Undercover investigators yeah. are the greatest actors in the world. You got to be. Yeah. But coming back to the uh, the nature of the work you do. Well, what, for example? Okay, for instance, uh, the butter business. What were you supposed to uncover there? A theft. They had a theft of butter in the bread factory. It sounds ridiculous, but it ran into quite a bit of money. 70-pound cartons of butter were being swiped on an average of once a week, and this was going on for six months to a year, which amounted to something like $4,000, $5,000. So they sent me in there, and I got a job as a mixer. I was a dough mixer. So I had a week to bust this case. And what happened was I found a, uh, a homemade knife stashed away in one of the closets with butter stains on it. We knew the butter was being taken out of the refrigerator. So what I did was I stationed myself on top of the refrigerator, which was a completely darkened room, and I stayed up there for four days, eight-hour shifts. What were your feelings when you were seated on top of the refrigerator for eight hours, you say? Eight hours, right. you have a need to go to the toilet? No. Huh. Whatever you I had to do, before. I did before I went up there. And eating and so, so you, what did you do during the eight hours? Smoked, looked out the window. <laughs> Keeping this place on a constant surveillance. I knew who came in, who went out. I knew the times. And Nobody I, saw you on top. Nobody place. saw me. And then this one particular Friday night, he comes. A cleanup man. So he comes, opens up, takes the butter, and then he left the area. I went down, I checked it out. It was butter. And called up my supervisor. This was like 2 o'clock in the morning. I says, ah, we got the guy. The case is over. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like a novel. All right. So, does this job affect your outlook outside the job on life? As a matter of fact, I think this job has done more for me as far as understanding people are concerned than before. You're making a discovery about human beings, too. Yeah, basically everybody's the same. This is my discovery. Why does a person steal? You know, if a guy steals a loaf of bread because he's got a kid who's hungry, you call this man a thief? I mean, you know, there's thieves and then there are thieves. You think the job then makes you more tolerant of people's frailties? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Makes you more tolerant? I think so, don't it, Kat? Yeah. You came a long way. What do you mean? What do you mean? In other words, <laughs> see, she's implying, if I get you right, that you didn't have this feeling once. Yeah, yeah you used to put people in categories, sort of. No uh, shades of things. Like, they were either black or white. You know, and, and that was it. And I think you've come out of that. Yeah, well, you find out that people aren't that bad, really. 
regardless of what you read in the paper, basically people aren't that bad. They're pretty good. We'll end with this. That sounds great. Private Eye Thomas Vachetti and his wife Kat, interviewed by Studs Terkel for his book Working. Vachetti is now retired and lives in New Jersey. And if you pick up a copy of the book, his story is under the pseudonym Anthony Ruggiero. You know, he had to keep a low profile. Going through all these tapes from the 1970s, it's fascinating to hear how different things were back then. Unions were powerful. You talked to an actual operator to make a long-distance phone call. And private investigators didn't have Google. But the interview that really struck me the most wasn't about how much had changed over the past four decades, but how much hasn't. This is the story of Renault Robinson, a Chicago police officer and one of the founders of the Afro-American Patrolman's League. I'm talking with Renault Robinson, and I'm thinking, Renault, why did you become a policeman? Well, policeman is looked upon in the black community as, as an important thing. Even though people are afraid of them or people have bad thoughts about them, the position itself is still one of importance. I quit a job paying more money to become a police officer, and uh, sometimes I wonder if that was the best decision to make. Could you describe your day, the day of a policeman in uniform? Well, first of all, you're given an assignment and a partner. Most of the white guys are wondering what black they're going to get today, and the black guys are wondering the same thing, which one of these fools am I going to get today? <laughs> A black cop is saying the only reason I'm with this white cop is because they want to protect his life while he's riding around the black community to, to ward off the bullets. And so, you know, there's hard feelings on both sides. Well, what happens then during these eight hours? You're sitting with this white guy. Say nothing to each other at all. Can you imagine that for eight hours? So there's no conversation? Very little or none. Very little or none. <laughs> Got told Studs exactly what the situation was. My name is Renault Robinson, and when I first started on the police department, I went in there to do the best job I could as a policeman. But that became very difficult once I realized what the true circumstances were. What led to your disenchantment? I think it was just seeing blacks being treated one way and whites being treated another. You know, the majority of the policemen in my station were white. The opinions that they have of black people are, are that they're all criminals, they have no morals, no scruples, they're dirty and nasty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the trouble is with an ordinary citizen. Could you dwell on this? Well, I would say about 60% of police citizen contact start on a traffic situation. Certain units have really developed a science around stopping the automobile. In other words, in their minds, <laughs> if they stop, a hundred cars in the black community, the likelihood of them finding one or two or three violations of some sort is highly possible. Now, of course, after you've stopped a thousand, you've got 900 people who are very pissed off. Teachers, lawyers, doctors, or just average working people who haven't broken any law and are very irritated and aggravated about being stopped by the police. And black folks or minority tolerance of that police brutality has grown very short. They won't accept it. They won't accept that treatment. They won't accept that dehumanizing, degrading treatment. That's why more young kids are being killed by the police than ever before. 50 years later. 
whether it's Chicago or Baltimore or Detroit, the same thing is happening in all of these cities. It just feels like deja vu. At the time I joined the Chicago Police Department, I was young and I guess I was very energetic about doing something about racism. You know, I remember they forced us to put sawed-off shotguns, police issued, in the squad cars, loaded with double-O buckshot. If you're a hunter, you know what that is. I and, you know, a handful of other black police officers just felt that that was wrong. You're chasing a kid or chasing a stolen car, and you got something that could tear somebody's head off. So the Afro-American Patrolman's League, we raised hell, we picketed, we marched, we did everything to get the police department to take those guns out of the squad cars. Of course, speaking out like that on a regular basis made me a popular fellow in the police department. You go into your locker room and you see in your mailbox is human feces and cigarette ashes and trash. You kind of know what that means. You go in the bathroom and there's a picture of you on the wall dressed as a native with a bone in your nose. You know how they feel. They were all knicky-knack stuff just to try and force me out of the department. I know the fact that you now have the reputation of speaking out, speaking your mind, every now and then you're suspended. I've got a 30-day suspension pending now. What do they use as grounds? Well, this latest one, I'm being suspended because I was passing out literature in the police station to black police about the Patrolman's League. I was arrested in the station, and I'm being suspended for conduct on becoming a policeman. In the end, I knew I had to go. I mean, I had fractured too many... <laughs> Too many feelings and uh, too many people who didn't want to hear what I had to say. And I left. I get a small pension now. And the beat goes on. In 1973, Renault Robinson and the Afro-American Patrolman's League filed a landmark discrimination suit against the Chicago Police Department. The case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of the Patrolman's League. Renault Robinson retired from the force in 1983. He still lives in Chicago. One of the things that first made me really excited about listening to the raw working tapes is that Studs Terkel is widely known for being a master interviewer, and I wanted to hear his moves. And I have to say, at first, it was disappointing. In the tapes, he doesn't sound like a great interviewer. He doesn't really ask surprising, insightful questions. A lot of the time, he's just reacting to what people are saying. But it's that reacting that makes him so good. People who knew him say Studs had a pretty big ego, but in these interviews, you can feel how much he's focused on another human being. You can hear him listening his curiosity, being totally in it. And of course, that's the simple, corny secret of interviewing, just giving someone your full, undivided attention. In this next story, Studs interviews a young advertising executive. 
She could be the prototype for the character Peggy Olson in Mad Men. This is about the work you do. You're a big shot, aren't you? Yes. Well, I write and produce television commercials. Big ones like General Mills, Campbell, Kraft, and I'm probably one of the, say, 10 highest paid people at the agency. Do you have a question what you're selling? Do I have a question what I'm selling? Oh, I would say all the time, of course. I don't think what I do is essential or necessary, even that it performs much of a service, you know. You're saying to a lady, because this oil comes from the bottom of the algae on the sea, you're going to have a timeless face. That's a crock of shit. I mean, I know that. It's a part of my job. I do it. But something else involved here. You are the only woman there. Well, I'm the only female producer at the agency. You know, it used to be the token black. Now I'm, I'm definitely the token woman. And I'm ideal because I know how to handle myself, obviously, or I wouldn't be where I am. I'm young enough to communicate, I think, effectively, and yet I'm old enough to see, you know, the danger. What is the danger? I mean, well, do the you danger see... is aging. I mean, I, I am in a profession in which I cannot age. I could not be doing this at 38. You might not be as valuable as you are right now? Well, I haven't seen many women in any executive capacity age gracefully in the advertising business. Just for the sake of the record, I might describe you as very, very attractive, you know. Well, I don't make any attempt to be, you know, the glasses and bun and, and totally asexual image, because that isn't the way I am. And I'm not overly provocative either. It's this thin line. When I'm with a strange group of men, say new clients, I'm frequently taken for the secretary, you know. Generally, the first reaction I get is, is they don't look at me. The first three meetings at, at Johnson, even if I would ask a direct question about the assignment or the project, they would answer the question and look at my boss or another man in the room. They had trouble relating just on, around a conference table. Uh, so you're the equal of these guys because you're bright. Yes, but I make them very nervous. Some of them can't categorize me. Here I am, this young girl, you know, she's not married. What's the matter with her? Doesn't she want a real life as a woman? You know, there are always labels that people use. Is it a lesbian? Is it, uh, you know, somebody's mistress in the company? Currently, the label that I enjoy, uh, you know, in quotes, is a women's liver, which I'm, you know, I advocate a certain amount. Now, here we come to a key. You are a young woman executive creative spirit. You're facing up to double standards, obviously. Uh, all the time. Yeah. I, there was a time when I thought if I'd been born male, it would have been a lot simpler. But I don't daily think of that. I just sit here and I think, Christ, you know, look where you are. This is a fantastic interview. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop the tape. Studs Terkel interviewing an advertising executive in 1972. She appeared in his book under the pseudonym Barbara Herrick. Eddie Arroyo was a jockey at the top of his game in the 1970s. He told Studs he loved the glamour of horse racing, but it was a tough job. Talking to uh, Eddie Arroyo, Eddie, anyway, I say to you, your work, a jockey, 
this is a sport that most people in America follow. Most right. do. Everybody plays horses. Tracks are filled. Right. So what led you to being a jockey? Well, I read about it, and I read how much jockeys made. So I figured, why not me? I'll give it a try. Because you were small in stature. Because I was and small. And you're five, five foot tall. You're five almost 5'1". Five right now, I weigh 106 pounds, stripped naked. I mean, I can, with the saddle and all, do 110. You have to watch every ounce, almost like a model. You would think that you would have to watch every ounce, but see, I waste so much energy riding mm. that I eat like a horse. <laughs> so how old were you when you became a jockey? Well, I was considered very, very late. I was 22 years old. And when that's I, unusually late. Unusually, right. They start at 16. That's so. 16, <clears throat> you, you, have, you don't have the fear of danger. Yeah, this is something that's hardly talked about, mm -hmm. this matter of the dangers, the perils mm -hmm. of being a jockey. Mm -hmm. What are the dangers? The most common accident in a race is what we call clipping of another horse's heels. Your horse trips with the other horse's heels and he'll automatically go down. What helps us there is that the horse is moving at such a momentum that when he falls, they fall so quick that we just sail in the air and land 15 feet away from the horse. You know, he just drops from us and we just keep going. So sometimes you're in a race and everybody is out to win it. Right. In our society, it's the way it is. You right. get more money mm -hmm. if you win, second, third, and then nothing. But right. is there an understanding among jockeys the matter of yes. safety? If a jockey is in trouble, that rider has to do everything in his power to help that other rider, whether it's going to cost him the race or not. When another jockey is in trouble, how can you tell? He hollers, I'm in trouble, I can't hold my horse. And if there's any possibility you're helping him move out so he can take his horse out wide, you do it. This is a key question. Mm -hmm. Do most jockeys do this, even though it may cost them the race? I would say most jockeys will do this. Most. Not all. Since you've become a jockey, has this in any way altered your feelings about non-humans? You know, about an animal, like a horse? Yes, it has. What I have learned is that by understanding the horse, his different moods, his personalities, that he's an individual, you know, and you have to accept them for what they are. Okay, we're out at the park racetrack, but we're looking at the finish line. My name is Eddie Arroyo. When Studs Turkle interviewed me, I was a jockey, and I'm one of the lucky ones. I walked away. It was the last race of the day. The horse, he fell, and I went down with the horse. You know, the ambulance picked me up, took me to the emergency room. I had fractured a couple of vertebrae in my lower back, and four months later, when I started to ride, I didn't have that drive anymore just didn't, wasn't there. When you ride a racehorse and you are not mentally aggressive, that horse picks up on that and, and they don't run. They don't really run hard for you. So I decided that's it. I'm not gonna ride anymore. When I walked away, I was ready. I didn't look back. There in the game. Eddie Arroyo retired as a jockey in 1978 and was inducted into the Chicago Sports Hall of Fame. 
He's now the chief steward for the Illinois Racing Board. We recorded him in his office at the Arlington Racetrack, where he once raced horses more than 40 years ago. While he was collecting interviews for his book, Studs went to visit Duke and Lee's Auto Repair in Geneva, Illinois, just outside Chicago. Studs went there to talk about the work of fixing cars. But what he found was a different story, about fathers and sons working together and the tensions within a family business. We went back more than four decades later and found the family business still intact, tensions and all. We'll start with Studs. We're on the south end of Route 31, Geneva, Illinois, and we're sitting here in the office of this service station and talking to Duke Singer. I'm looking at the sign, Duke and Lee's, there's father and son. And uh, your son Lee is how old? 24. He's 24. He's your partner. Yes. And Lee, you've been working with your father how long? Well, more or less ever since I've been 12 years old. So let's talk about the work you do, Duke. Oh, I love it. There's never a, there's never a day long enough, you know. It's the automobile. It's tinkering with cars you like. It's not tinkering. It's no, I'm not tinkering. I'm sorry. Repairing. Fixing. Repairing. You know. For instance, this morning, a man come in. We uh, repacked his wheel bearings, aligned his front end, lubricate and change oil. And he didn't know it, but he had uh, only one taillight working, so we fixed that. You know, see, all we sell is service. And if you can't give service, then you might as well give up. Let's talk a little about that, Duke. The matter of... Uh, service. I know you're proud of it, quite obviously. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, my wife tells me that I take my business more serious than a doctor, and I told her if I didn't take it serious, you know, who would? Now, your son, is Lee's attitude toward the job the same as yours? No. He's, uh, he's a little bit, uh, well, say, for instance, a person's car is broke down. It's on a Sunday or a Saturday night or something, and uh, maybe it'd take an hour to fix it. Why, well, I'll go ahead and fix it. But Lee's uh, type, it'll say, well, leave it set till Monday. You know. Yeah. I'm talking to Duke's son now, Lee Singer. Lee, do you feel, that's a big question, because this involves generations. Do you feel there's a difference between his attitude and your attitude toward the job? Oh, yeah. I have pride in, in, in what I do, but uh, see, this day and age, you don't always repair something. You renew. Go ahead. Tell me more about this. Take a water pump. Back, back in his era, you rebuilt water pumps, but now it's, you put on new ones. His ideas are, are old, really. He's uh, kind of old-fashioned. In what way is he old-fashioned? What way? like judging people. Anybody with long hair is no good to him, see. Anybody with long hair, even me. <laughs> she pointed out that Lee's hair isn't long, but it's longer than the usual right. conventional hair. Do you like your work? <laughs> yeah, I like my work. In a way. What do you mean by that? I play music. What kind of music? Playing a rock group. Mm -hmm. Play drums, bass, bass. Then you feel that there's something else outside the work you're doing here. Oh yeah, there's other world. Whereas to your father, this is the world. Right. But I'm in now, pretty deep. You know, it's uh, it's 
It's one of those deals where the son does carry on the family tradition. Lee, thank you very much. How you doing, Phil? Good. You got any warranty on that, baby? We fixed the uh, transmission shift on it yesterday. Duke and Lee's, how may I help you? I am Lee Singer. My dad died, I think it was May the 6th of 2005. You guys have a good one. All right. He was old school. <laughs> he could pinpoint rattles, squeaks, noises from an engine or a transmission or a differential. I mean, we could, <laughs> we could put him in the trunk of a vehicle, shut the lid, and go drive it around the neighborhood, hit some bumps. And he'd holler out, okay, take it back. And he'd tell you right exactly what it was. Like that. I, I mean, I really did appreciate what my dad knew, you know. But as far as uh, <laughs> our, our relationship, he always kind of looked down on me, you know. I don't know what his problem was. I mean... Well, I had friends, and I, I know they had a lot better relationship with their dad than I ever did, but they weren't with their dad as much as I was either. So, you know, a family business, it's it's totally different. Yeah, it's, it's tough, father and son, working together. It's tough. It is. <laughs> this is my son, Scott. What's, I mean, I don't think our relationship is as bad as how you and Grandpa were, but... Um, it's like, like you said, he was old school. Well, now you're old school because you're like grandpa. You don't want change. And I, I said that because we're in that new generation, that new era where everything's getting even more advanced and it's all going electronic and hands-free. So you got to be able to adapt to that if you're going to succeed. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be Duke. You know, I'm not going to be here until I can't walk or anymore. And I'm not going to do that. I need to step back more. And uh, if this place is to continue, well, that all depends on Scott. I mean, you have to be willing to make change to survive with the new air. And if I'm going to run the show, I'm going to run the show. Hopefully for another 40 years. Just don't forget about service to your customer. Duke and Lee's, how may I help you? Duke and Lee's Auto Repair. By the way, if you pick up a copy of the book, it was called Glenn and Dave's. Not long ago, Lee's singer's son, Scott, officially took over the family business. And now Scott has a new employee, his 24-year-old son, Austin. We're closing the hour with an interview Studs did in the lounge of the Sherman Hotel in downtown Chicago. For many years, that's where Hotz Michaels spent his nights taking requests from people gathered around the piano bar. We're sitting with Hotz Michaels. If you want a noodle at the piano, you can, fine. At the piano bar, people sit around the piano and they're drinking. It's now cocktail hour, about six or so. Hotz, how long have you been playing? I started here in 1952, Studs. When I started here, we had six piano players per night, the strolling violins, and we had a full orchestra. 
I am the last live entertainment of the Sherman Hotel. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about your work. Describe your work. Well, piano playing is secondary. <laughs> it's kind of background music uh, for uh, talking, people getting together. Out-of-town visitors, businessmen talking over whatever deals of the day they had to talk over, lawyers. It's a great gathering spot for lawyers. Uh, give us a drink over here. What generally are the subjects that people on the piano bring up? Talk about personal things with you? Very. <laughs> like what? Well, well like what? Uh, marriage. Domestic problems. Domestic problems. The saloons are kind of full of lonely people. Trying to fill a, an empty hour or two. A void in their life somewhere, you know. <laughs> Stutz, can you excuse me one yeah, moment? Yeah, sure. Hello, Jamie. Hi, honey. Nice to see you girls. Oh, we're just kind of having fun here, taping the show. This is Mr. Stubbs Kirk up here, girls. <laughs> so, you are the only live musician right now? In the Sherman Hotel. What? What is it has happened? Well, number one, when, the, when television came in and came in strong, it put a terrible dent in live entertainment. No question about it. Uh, number two, uh, I think a uh, little bit of fear. 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 Inner city, is what you mean? Sure, people that I know, people that I know well, haven't been downtown in two, three years. This then is connected with the move to the suburbs. Absolutely. With the amplified music, as you can hear on the jukebox that's... Right now. There never was a jukebox before. Here. There never was a jukebox in Hotel Sherman until recently. Do you have... Years of work coming to an end. Absolutely. The first many years of this business, I drank. And I think I drank because I was afraid. <laughs> I haven't drank in eight years, and I'm still afraid. Really? Sure. Not afraid of growing old, afraid of what, what lies ahead, what happens. I've watched a lot of other piano players that I know that are 60, 63 years old. And I don't like what I see. As we finish our conversation, you mentioned well, this business. You said this business. It is a business, a definite business. I'm here to create selling of liquor, and that's how I derive my salary. It is a, a business. You weren't thinking of it as an art form. I don't really think of it as an art form, because I never thought much of myself as an artist. I know my limitations. Uh, it was very frustrating years ago, but uh, I learned my uh, limitations, and I'm glad I learned them. I was a lot happier for it. Do you have any favorites, son? Good night, Council. Studs Terkel interviewing Norman Hotz Michaels at the Sherman Hotel in downtown Chicago in 1972. A year later, the hotel was demolished. Michaels eventually found a new home at the Chicago Chop House, where he played for another 20 years. He died in 2006 at the age of 82. If there's one thing you learn from reading working, and you can also hear it in the tapes, it's that while people work because they have to, that's only part of the picture. As he went around the country with his reel-to-reel tape recorder, Studs heard people talk about wanting to be occupied looking for structure, community, 
pride, meaning. As human beings, we're wired to search for these things. And if we're lucky, we find them in what we spend most of our waking hours doing. In the introduction to his book, Studs Terkel writes this, which I love. Work is about the search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than torpor, in short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Our series, The Working Tapes, is a collaboration between Radio Diaries and Project And. The producers are me, Joe Richman, Jane M. Sachs, Nellie Gillis, and Sarah Kate Kramer. Our editors are Deborah George and Ben Shapiro. This radio series is also part of the larger Working in America initiative, a photo exhibition of 24 working Americans that's traveling around the country right now. You can submit a story about your own work at working.org. You can also learn more about Project And at projectand.org. Also, thanks to the Studs Terkel Radio Archive at WFMT, the Chicago History Museum, and NPR. We couldn't have produced this series without support from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Ford Foundation, and the Hitachi Foundation. We are a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Joe Richmond of Radio Diaries. Thanks for listening.